Let's bow together. Father, we are so thankful for your kindness and your grace and your mercy all and love, all demonstrated and poured forth in sending your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you that in him alone there is the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that the price has been paid and that Christ uh, paid that price and it is finished. It is finished. And Father, I thank you that because of Christ, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with you. And for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we do have a relationship with you. And I just pray as we look in your word today that we would be instructable, that you would, you would instruct us, that we would grow in this relationship with you and your son. And for those who don't know you, that you would work in their hearts that their hearts would be soft and and ready to to receive Christ. I pray for that. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, what are the goals in your life? When you think about your life, you think about what you want to do with it, what the future is. What are the goals for your life? What things are at the top of that list of the goals? Maybe for some it might be financial security. Maybe securing a future for your children. Maybe uh, goals are work-related or centered around whatever it might be. Ministry goals. Uh, maybe your goal is to serve or teach. Or maybe you don't even have any goals. But uh, what are your goals? Well, I believe we're going to see that within those things that the Lord has us do on a daily basis, within those things that we do a walk through on a daily basis as, as those on earth that the Lord wants us to have uh, a goal that is beyond that, that is superior to that, that overrides all of that, that each one of those things uh, rides underneath. I believe we're going to see today the marks of a true believer where we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's testimony and we're going to see the desires or the, des- or the desires of the heart, the desires of a true believer. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and we're going to be looking through verse 11. Philippians 3, verses 9 through 11. And just an abbreviated context for the book of Philippians, we know that the Apostle Paul from Acts 16 was privileged to be the spiritual father of the Philippian church, having shared the gospel with Lydia and her family and the Philippian jailer and his household. And we know from that that Paul is writing to the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi. They are believers in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul loves them and they love him. They have supported him and they are, and he, and he is greatly concerned for their spiritual condition and they were concerned about his circumstances being under house arrest in Rome. We've seen the Apostle Paul praying for them, uh, understanding his desire for that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would grow in discernment and real knowledge and love. He's made it clear that the Lord who had began this good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And he's shared his circumstances that although he is imprisoned, the gospel's not in chains. And that God was using those difficulties to further the gospel. And so Christ was magnified and Paul's desire was that Christ would be magnified. And he understood the very real possibility of being put to death at the hands of Caesar, and he recognized to live as Christ and to die as gain. But to live, he would remain on, would be more fruitful for the Philippian church. And then he looked at their circumstances, 
that they needed to have the right attitude towards their difficulties, towards their trials. They needed to stand firm in the gospel. They needed to strive together in the faith of the gospel. They needed to not be upset or, or, or shaken, troubled by those who were opposing them. And they are to be unified in the context of humility, seeing one another as more important than themselves. Having the mind that was in Christ Jesus, that humility of of, of seeing others as supremely more important than self in the context of obeying God as Christ did all the way to the cross, even death on the cross. And therefore the person of Christ was highly exalted and given the name above any other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And within that, we are to work out this wonderful salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is working in us. We are to work out what he is working in us. And we are to do all things without complaining and grumbling or or arguing. Everything without that. That we would prove and and be be manifesting as those, those, those lights holding forth the word and holding on to the word of Christ. And then we saw three examples of humility in Christ-likeness in the end of chapter 2. Uh, Paul himself, and then Timothy, and then Epaphroditus. Three examples to follow, three examples to look at from Scripture. So then coming into chapter 3, we had the reminder from the Apostle Paul that certainly we need to rejoice in the Lord, we need to have the right attitude, but that there are dangers. We are to beware, beware, beware. It's, he considered it right to remind them of these things. It was for their benefit, for their profit. And he made it clear that there were those who were, who were dogs, they were evil workers, they were false brethren. And within that, being warned of that, he gave a contrast so that they would know how to spot them by spotting the real ones. He said, for we are those who worship in the Spirit of God, who, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. True believers do that. They, they, they worship not in their flesh, but the Spirit of God through the truth of God towards the God of the Word. And then they uh, glory in Christ Jesus. They boast in Christ and not in self or others. And they put no confidence in the flesh. They rely and trust by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's from this point we come to uh, the Apostle Paul's testimony. And his testimony is such that he had great reason to be confident in his flesh. Great reason. So let's, let's look at our passage here and we'll... We will review uh, that earlier portion. But let's start in verse 8 uh, here at Philippians chapter 3. And I believe as we look here, we're going to see the marks of a true believer. We're going to see as Paul shares his own testimony and continues to do so, we're going to see what the desires of a true believer should look like. What the desires of a true believer should look like. Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now we have seen Paul's mindset before Christ. He was confident in himself. Uh, true believers put no confidence in the flesh, but Paul says, hey, if I had a reason to be confident, 
I had it. He says in, in uh, verse 3, for we are the, he says in verse 4, excuse me, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. These bad guys, they, they seem to have the, the list of religious qualifications. They're false. If anyone had confidence or could put confidence in the flesh, he's saying, I could do so far more. And then he shares those things that he had fleshly confidence in. The things he relied upon or elevated in regards to God before he had come to faith in the living God. He says uh, in verse 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrews of Hebrews. He was a, he was a purebred Hebrew. And he was a, 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 a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was not a proselyte. He was a Jew by lineage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, and we see here, secondly, as to the law of Pharisee, he had reached the pinnacle of religious accomplishment being a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he was sincerely zealous for God, but without wisdom. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. Externally, his cup was very clean. He followed the law, and externally, you could look at the Apostle Paul, and everything was right. But on the inside, he was like what Jesus would say, those Pharisees, the, the, the inside was dirty and needed to be cleaned. The outside was shiny. And then we see Paul makes clear that this stuff that he counted on before Christ, that's his mindset, meant nothing when he came to Christ. Look at verse 7. This is Paul's mindset at conversion. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted or reckoned as loss or total loss for the sake of Christ. Those things I have counted as loss. Paul used to continually see his religious heritage, his religious accomplishments, his religious sincerity, his religious external righteousness as gain in terms of his relationship with God. But when he came to Christ on the road to Damascus, or Christ came to him, uh, he actually saw that what he had counted on was actually total loss. Total loss. What he's saying is that when he came to Christ, or Christ came to him, that he counted all those things, and they are now to me, literally, loss. They're all on the loss scale. They have no value. They're worthless, as we will see. Why? For the sake of Christ. And the reality is you can't come to Christ unless you see your religiousness and your accomplishments, all those things, as the sin that it really is. You need to see it as the, as the rubbish that it really is, just as other sins. The Apostle Paul had it all on the outside, but on the inside he needed to be saved, and Christ saved him. And he recognized all that stuff was, was loss. And notice what he says. Not only did he count it as lost in order to gain Christ, he recognizes that knowing or having a relationship with Christ is more valuable than anything. Verse, verse 8, this is what we looked at last week. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul makes it clear that an intimate relational knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ surpasses everything. It surpasses everything. A real relationship with the living God. 
with the Lord Jesus Christ surpasses everything. And he says that he counted everything lost in view of that surpassing greatness of the, the super above greatness of knowing Christ. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that has been brought forth through the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul understood that. And notice what he says. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of that. And then he says in the end of verse 8, For whom I have suffered, speaking of Christ Jesus his Lord, the loss of all things, and count them but refuse. It's, It's rubbish. It's worthless waste. Worthless waste. All that stuff that was in the plus side before Jesus is now seen in his heart and mind as worthless. Worthless. Paul had lost it all for Christ. And certainly he lost his position as a Pharisee. He lost his status, most likely his wealth. And certainly it's quite possible he had lost his family. We know those relationships were changed. And he went from the persecutor to the persecuted. He went from one who, who was the one who was chasing after to the one who was being chased and physically suffering for, for that. And Paul rightly, after coming to Christ, continually, habitually reckoned all those things he used to trust in and focused on as loss or worthless refuse in light of knowing Christ Jesus in light of him. Well, we saw what he had lost, right? Those things he had trusted in. We saw it indeed. He had gained Christ. He had gained Christ. And then we come to the end of that portion and to our passage. Look at the end of verse 8. And count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, you can't gain a relationship with Christ apart from seeing all your religiousness is lost. You can't come into a relationship with Christ apart from having your sins forgiven. The Apostle Paul's example, he was a very religious person. His sin was religious sin. He was clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. And notice what he says, in order that I may gain Christ. That word speaks of a purpose or result. I count these things this way in order that I may gain Christ. And notice what he says. We have two related statements in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now at this point, the Apostle Paul gives us two results specifically of truly believing the gospel. True results of believing the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Two results, in order that, first of all, as we review, that I might gain Christ. That I might gain Christ. Now, Paul isn't saying that he's possibly not going to gain Christ. He's speaking of the reality that he had to and continue to see those things that way, that he might gain Christ. You see, you cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ without repudiating what you trusted in before for salvation. You have to see it as loss. You have to see Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life. Now, Paul isn't saying here that he possibly may not gain Christ. That's not what he's saying, because we know earlier in Philippians 1.6, he was confident with the Philippians they, that God would complete the work that he started. So the statement isn't saying that I may or may not gain Christ. I had to think this way to gain Christ, and then as we'll see, be found in him with a different righteousness. 
His righteousness, not my own. You see? That's what happens in salvation. You see, salvation is about knowing Christ. It's about gaining a relationship with the living God. And we see that. Salvation is about knowing Christ. John 17.3, and this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You see, Isaiah makes it clear that sin causes a separation between us and God, Isaiah 59. And that the wages of sin is death. And he shares to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 that mankind without God is without hope in the world. And we need to remember what true spiritual death is. It's being separated from the living God because of sin. And it's only when we truly come into a relationship with Christ through faith, having received his righteousness, we can have a relationship with the living God. We gain the relationship with the living God. We gain Christ. We gain Christ. Now, our gaining of Christ begins with gaining his righteousness. That's called justification, being declared right with God because Jesus paid the penalty. And within that, there's a practical sense of an ongoing gaining that, being conformed to his image, that's sanctification. And ultimately, as we will see, we will be made like him, that's glorification, when we are with him, Philippians 3, 21. So... This term, in order that, quite clearly implies that if we didn't see our old life, all that we trusted in, in light of its true reality as worthless refuge, trash, we don't gain Christ. If Paul had held on to anything religiously from his old life, he would not gain Christ. It would not have happened. Currently, there are many people who think they're Christians because... But they're not, because they have not been willing to give up their old lives and willing to gain Christ. We need to be willing to come to him humbly. We don't have the power to do it, but we have the will to turn to Christ when convicted by the Spirit of God and say, Lord God, you got it all. You got it all. And so here, there are many people who might think they're Christians, but they have not been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. They haven't given themselves over to Christ through seeking the forgiveness of sins. Have you gained Christ? Have you gained Christ? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself here or in other places his own soul? You see, you need to be willing to give up your sinful life. That life that is mired by sin and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and receive new life in Jesus Christ. New life in Christ. Salvation is not about being a Christian. It is about knowing Christ and gaining him. It's about knowing him. Gaining a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul didn't know him until he was saved. Who art thou, Lord? And he gained Christ. And he was gaining Christ in that. It's all on the gain side. And notice here, 
This truth goes hand in hand with coming into a relationship with Christ. He says, in order that I may gain Christ, I saw all this stuff as rubbish, or that I may gain Christ, end of verse 8, and may be found in him. Now, when we read through this initially, we think, well, wait a second, may be found? Is it possible Paul saying, you know, I'm not saved and I, I'm going to try to be righteous? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying all this stuff is rubbish that I would gain him and be found in him. That's what he's talking about. He says, speaking about being found in him. You know, before Christ, Paul was found in Judaism. When you looked at Saul of Tarsus, that's Paul before he was saved, he was caught up in the trappings of religion. He had everything he thought he needed. He was adequate within himself. He was confident and self-righteous before coming to Christ. But after coming to Christ, he realized all that was complete loss, worthless refuse, And as a result, he would gain Christ and be found in him alone. And notice he expands on that. He expands on that. Verse 9, and may be found in him, and here's the expansion, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Before Paul believed in Christ, as many religious people believed, they believed they could attain righteousness through their works. Remember what the Apostle Paul said back in verse 6, as to righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. He thought he was right before God. He was sincerely and zealously wrong. He wrongly believed that by the works of the law in the word that he could be righteous, that he could meet the righteous standards that God demands upon his creation. But notice in the middle of verse 9, but we have this phrase here. We have a life and death contrast, a contrast between man's righteousness, which cannot save and brings death, with a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ, which alone can bring salvation Thus, clearly, we have a summary of the process, as we'll see, is what's called justification. He says, not, I don't want to be found. I'm not going to be found having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, law law-keeping, but that which is what? Through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What a tremendous statement. Trying a statement. You see, we are all unrighteous. We are unrighteous. And God demands righteousness. He demands righteousness. And the Bible says clearly that there are none righteous, not even one. In God's sight, none of us are righteous within ourselves. That by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous or justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You may be able to keep the externals and maybe from people looking at the outside, but on the inside, I'm sure you've got idols. I'm sure you've coveted. I'm sure those things are there. The law reveals our sin. Reveals our sin. You see, man's problem is pride. It's sin. Religious or irreligious. You see, the irreligious man believes in his pride. He can get away with sin. The religious man believes that what he does will cover that sin. It's both pride. It's both wrong. 
And this pride is manifest in the religious side in all kinds of religiosity, which we would call works salvation. But Paul said clearly here, he counted his works, his righteousness as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, those righteous works, so that he would gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, not having one that's from me and not from God. Where's your righteousness come from? Does it come from what you do or what you think or what you've done or the things that you think make you right? Or does it come from God, a righteous God who who gives his righteousness to us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous? You see, Paul saw his righteousness literally as as that's what he did before, just as worthless, worthless refuse. Isaiah makes it clear that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Like a filthy garment. It's only when we encounter the Son of God through the Word of God, the Gospel, we recognize the filth of our self-righteousness, self-determination and focus, self-focus, and cry out to God to save us in Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, God who took on human flesh, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, that we put our faith in him because he brought about the forgiveness of sins through his death, we are declared by God righteous. We have righteousness through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The price is paid by Jesus. So God says you're righteous when you are in Christ my son. We are declared to be right with God. Tremendous reality. This is what Paul shares in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, to be sin on our behalf. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. Paul realized the only way he wanted to be found was in Christ with a righteousness that he gained through faith in Christ. So we have an amazing statement in verse 9 that shows how God gives his very righteousness to us. The means is by faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9 again. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Faith in the Messiah, the Son of God who took on our sins, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, trusting in Jesus Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved from your sin. You believe he died. He paid the penalty. Lord Jesus, save me. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord be saved. And you will receive his righteousness. His righteousness. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Nothing you do. It's what he did And by trusting in him, you receive his righteousness. It's through faith you receive righteousness. But remember, the object of your faith matters. It's not through the Catholic faith you receive righteousness. It's not through the Protestant faith you receive righteousness. It is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing who he is in his work work on the cross, that he died for your sins. And when you trust in Christ Jesus, God declares you to have his righteousness because the price is paid we are united with him we receive his righteousness 
Again, man is unrighteous. The wages of sin is death. There are none righteous, not even one. But when you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, when you are redeemed, the penalty has been paid and God declares us to be righteous. It's found in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Are you a saint? Are you righteous because of Jesus? See, the only way to do so is to believe you're a sinner first and to turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Lord Jesus, save me and he will save you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there, I believe, we have a concise explanation of one element of salvation, justification. The gaining of righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ in the context of rejection of one's sin, in Paul's case, his own filthy self-righteous deeds. Okay? He says that he wants to be found in him, that he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is, fa- which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes on the basis of faith. There are some of you here today, maybe, that see your own works or your deeds as what makes you right before God. All that is fil- are filthy rags. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin in your place. And if you trust in him, his righteousness, Christ the righteous, will be accredited to your account. Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive his righteousness. When the time of judgment comes, when you die, when you stand before the Lord, will you be found in Christ and his righteousness or found in something else? If you were to die today, what will you be found in by God? Will you be in Christ? Or will he say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You're still in your sins. What will you be found in? You can play games with people, you can play games with people, but you can't play games with God. When you stand before him, he will righteously judge. Will you be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own? but a righteousness that comes by faith in him will be found in Christ? I pray you will. So then the apostle Paul counted all his loss in order to gain Christ and his righteousness. To gain Christ and his righteousness. That's the beginning of salvation. Well, what, does it, what direction does a believer go from this point when one is, is gains Christ and is righteous? Which direction do we go? What do we see in Paul's testimony here? I believe we're going to see Paul's ultimate goal after being saved was he had a deep desire to know Christ, to have an intimate, relational, practical knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the direction we should go. And we often get distracted or or detoured. I often talk about how we can get distracted. If you ever watch us walking our dog, they're walking one, we all of a sudden get distracted. Everything around, right? We can get distracted. Get our eyes pulled off of why God saved us and where he is taking us, what we should be pressing on towards. We get distracted. We forget. The Apostle Paul's testimony inspired by the Spirit should remind us and redirect our hearts. Let's go back to verse 8, and I want to read up through our portion here again. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Look at verse 10. That, that, here's the direction we go. That 
having his righteousness, gaining Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the direction we go. That's the direction Paul went. And he'll say later on, I haven't made it yet, but I press forward towards that goal. I press forward. This is a testimony of a true believer. This is where we should be, brothers and sisters. Notice he continues again. It's all about Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him. Justification or being declared righteous is just the beginning of salvation. Paul had gained Christ and his, res- and his re- righteousness and now his focus was knowing the God who now he could have a relationship with because his sins were no longer in the way. You see, when sin is taken care of, we can now walk with the living God. We can grow in the living, with the living God in, a, in relationship to him. Remember, Paul, in this context, is giving his testimony as a true believer in light of false brothers, by the way. Remember that. That's the context here. This is a testimony of true brothers and sisters, of a true believer, brothers and sisters. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? That I may know him. One pastor writes, Some people may get the impression that being saved by faith means there's no motivation for conduct or works. They think if a person is saved by grace, it means he just sits around and twiddles his thumbs. Nothing could be further from the truth. Saving faith is a faith that moves you. If you've been saved by faith, you have a new motivation, a new life purpose, a new lifestyle. If your faith in Christ hasn't changed you, you haven't been saved. He says, you're still the same old person producing the same old life. Paul dissipates any notion that being saved by faith means you can sit around in a rocking chair and rock yourself all the way to heaven. He's basically saying you're going to be changed. The Apostle Paul's testimony was gaining Christ and then knowing him as we'll see. Knowing him. Knowing him. It's all about a desire to know him. That I may know him. Remember Paul said earlier, he counted all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Eternal life is based on knowing God. A relationship with the living God. When we are saved, we come into a relationship with Christ, but we don't really know him that well. We don't really know him that well. It's the start of an eternal relationship with the living God. Our justification allows us to relate and know a holy God. It opens that door to that relationship. But it is as we are sanctified, our intimate relational knowledge of Christ increases. Increases. This might bring you some of you to ask, how is it that we can know Christ better? Well, how did you come to know him in the first place? How did you come to know Jesus in the first place? It was through hearing the word and thus believing concerning Christ. Let me share some passages. Ephesians chapter 1, 13. In him, you also, in him is Christ, by the way, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You heard the word and you believed it. Romans chapter 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We walk by faith, as we'll see. 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. 
We came into our relationship with God through God declaring the truth concerning us and his son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. We learned about him through the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. As the Apostle Paul would share to the Colossians, As therefore you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ? We believed the truth that God had revealed about himself in Scripture, and we called upon him in a personal way based on that truth. We related to him based on the truth of the word of God. And that's how we grow in respect to salvation. That's how we grow in our relationship with Christ. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them. True conversion should lead to a desire to know him. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. True believers, like a baby that is born, have a desire for food, for milk, that they would grow. And like that, we should have a desire for the pure milk of the word that we would grow in respect to the Lord, our relationship with him, respect to salvation. Salvation is about knowing Christ intimately and relationally. And Peter makes it clear how we grow in our salvation in that portion I just read. We also see this in 2 Peter, as I've mentioned before. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I said 2 last week, but chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's what's important. A relational knowledge of him. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through what? The true knowledge of him. When we walk with Christ, we rely on him, we abide in him, we walk with him, letting his word work in our hearts. He enables us for everything we need, right? And he says here, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. You might be like Christ, not be Christ, but like him, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. If you've truly been saved, then you will have a desire to know Christ when sin is not in the way, by the way. When sin gets in the way, that desire goes out the window. I'll tell you that right now. You'll have a desire for his word. When babies are born, they desire milk. When we were born again, we should desire the word of God. And if you don't, maybe, maybe you don't know him. Or sin has gotten in the way. Remember, this is Paul's testimony in comparison to false brethren. A true believer wants to know Christ And if you've never had that desire, maybe you've never tasted the kindness of the Lord. But you can. You can. You can taste his kindness by trusting in Jesus Christ and believing in him. That can happen today. Let me ask you this. Do you have a desire to know Christ? 
What direction did the heart of Paul take after conversion? He desired to know him. He desired to know him. This should be our focus. If not, there's two things we need to do. One, examine yourself to see if you're saved. Two, check to see if maybe you've been hardened by sin. And just confess and be forgiven right away. And praise him for who he is and what he's done. Well, now at this point, notice there's two related areas to knowing Christ. Two related areas that he shares. Verse 10, that I may know him. And then notice this first one. And the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and his resurrection power. His resurrection power. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Romans chapter 1 says his son was declared by the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection best illustrates the surpassing greatness of his power. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. It reveals his power. His power. The resurrection proves that Christ had power over death, sin, Satan and his cohorts, and the physical and spiritual worlds. It proves it. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He resurrected from the dead. He rose from the dead. And Paul says that I would know his resurrection power. Have you ever thought that? If you're desired to know the resurrection power of Christ. Now, that needs to be qualified. Because we in our sinfulness might want to use power for our own will. Right? His resurrection power was not for his own will, not my will, but thy will be done. To die for our sins. Right? And rise from the dead. Now this type of knowledge, is it out of reach for the believer to know his resurrection power? Is it out of reach for you and I? No. Indeed, Paul prayed this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. He prayed that these Ephesians would know his resurrection power. His resurrection power. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you in your love for the saints, say you're true believers, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's, you could say, spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that you'll know him better. You'll have spiritual wisdom and revelation in that. And notice what he says after this. He says here, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, some have a note in there. The New King James, I believe, translates it better. You could translate it this way. Having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. Since this has happened, since you see now, he says, so that you may know three things. What is the hope of his calling? What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? You'd know that, brothers and sisters. And then look at the last one here. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And he's going to go on to say this is resurrection power. He wants us to know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us for becoming like Christ, by the way, as we'll see. The power that comes from God to make us like him. And notice what he says here. This is, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about when Christ, when he raised him from the dead. Resurrection power. 
and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Resurrection power in Christ. I want to know his power in my life. I want to see him work powerfully in my life to make me more like his son. I want to see that. And then notice, to go with that, he also talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, the resurrection power that rose Christ enables us to have victory over sin, death, Satan, and the world. Enables us to have victory. It's only by Christ that you can do anything. Apart from him, you can do, do nothing. But when his resurrection power is manifest in us as we trust him, we have victory over sin and Satan and death, obviously. But notice also he talks about that I may know him, verse 10. That I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now one thing I want you to realize here is he doesn't say that I may suffer. He says I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Sufferings is part and parcel for true believers. But there is a special bond that happens when you suffer with someone. Think about it. Have you ever suffered in a situation with anyone? If you suffered in a, you know, you have people who suffer together in war, whatever it might be, there's a bond that comes together. So you suffer in a situation with a spouse, there's a bond that grows in that suffering, that mutual suffering. There's a closeness in that. The term fellowship comes from the word koinonia, means participation or sharing. Now, he's not speaking of the suffering unto death for our atonement. That's finished. He's speaking of the suffering that comes for following Christ. The suffering that is intended for Jesus Christ and comes to his followers. He's talking about suffering for Christ for righteousness sake while on this earth. While that results from obediently doing the will of God. It's a suffering we encounter that is meant for Jesus when we do his will and not our own. And within that, in that suffering, there is a bond that happens when you suffer with someone for the right thing. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want, to, I want to grow in my relationship with him in the midst of suffering. I want to grow in that. First Peter chapter 2 speaks of this. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for, him, for you to follow in his, in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, speaks of the suffering that, that reveals we are blessed because we have a relationship with him. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, sharing those sufferings, to the degree you participate in those sufferings, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because why? The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're, you're a real believer. You've got a real relationship with the living God. Right? By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not, not feel ashamed, but let him in that name, let him glorify God. We know from Matthew chapter 5, there is great reward for suffering for Christ. A reward in heaven is great. It's great. Think about it, that special closeness that happens between two persons when they share the same suffering. It's a closeness in it. Paul doesn't say that I would suffer, but that I would, in the sense, know him, the power of his resurrection, and know the fellowship of his sufferings. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever thought, I want to know his resurrection power in my life for victory over sin? I want to know the fellowship, that intimacy that comes when I suffer for doing what's right in him. Paul wants to share that intimate communion with Christ that one shares when they suffer with him. So Paul counted all his loss to gain Christ, and he gained his righteousness. That's the beginning of salvation. But then he had a deep desire to know him intimately, relationally, with practical knowledge of Christ. And lastly, notice we see he had a deep desire to be like him. To be like him. I want to know him. I want to be like him. That's what we should be doing. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. End of verse 10, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, he connects the knowledge of Christ and his power and his sufferings with the conforming purposes, with his conforming purposes. Be conformed to his death. Being conformed. That I may know, I may know, I may know. Being conformed to his death. You see, as we get to know Christ more, we understand his power in our lives and we suffer with him, we begin to become more like him. Being conformed to his death. The term conformed here is actually the word soon morphizo. Soon means with, so you could say conformed with, by the way, that's adding a with in there. Morphizo, we get our word morphe or morph, right? It speaks of an outward expression of one's true inward nature. You know, you see it on whatever TV stuff where someone morphs into something, they morph into what they really are, right? You see what they really are, right? He says soon to be conformed with. Being conformed with what? His death. What's that mean? Well, we know Jesus died physically to redeem sinners. But to die that death, Jesus had to die to his will, entrusting himself to the Father, so as to bring about physical death. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, to redeem sinners. So I believe Paul has an inner desire for his, this desire for his inner desire to be manifest in his outward behavior. One, uh, Pastor writes, Paul's desire was that he might come to know his Lord, the power of his resurrection operative in his life, the joint participation of his sufferings, that he would be brought to a place where he would become both in his inner heart and life and also as the outward expression the same like his Lord with respect to his death. Not merely his physical death, which was for others, but his death to self as illustrated so vividly to the Philippians in the self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross to die for us. You see, Jesus Christ died to sin. He died for our sins. We'll see that in Romans chapter 6. 
You see, when we go through suffering and difficulties, God uses that to make us like Christ, to die to ourselves. First Corinthians chapter, or Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul said, we have the sense of death within ourselves. We're suffering in order that we would not trust in ourselves, but the God who raises the dead. Not trust in ourselves, but the God who raises the dead. We see that in chapter four of Second Corinthians, always carrying out in the body the dying of Jesus. Always carrying it out. But it doesn't just stop here. Notice what follows. What follows death to self is life. Is life. He says, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, before you jump ahead and think he's speaking of literal resurrection here, this is a very difficult verse to interpret. There's some people who say it's one of the most difficult in the Bible. I don't know if it's that one, but uh, it's pretty difficult. And the reason why there are two interpretive problems that I have to share, and hopefully if I share this, we'll come to a conclusion and understand what's being said here. But he says, in order that I might attain, and it speaks of if perhaps somehow I might arrive. And that's a difficulty because, wait a second, Paul is clear in other passages he's going to be resurrected. There's no doubt he's going to be resurrected. He is clear that God will complete the work he started. He's clear. Other passages are very clear about that. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He is assured that he will not remain uh, bodiless or naked as he shares, that he's going to be glorified. He knows that. So that's the first problem. Some have said he's just being humble, that I might arrive. I don't think that's the case. Now, the first problem is actually answered by the second problem, by the way which is the term used for resurrection. The usual term for resurrection in Scripture is anastasis. That means resurrection. This word is a unique word only found once in Scripture where there's a preposition added to it. Ek anastasis, which means out from, out resurrection. So what's he talking about? That I might attain the out resurrection. What is he talking about here? Well, some say he's speaking of bodily resurrection. I don't think that's what he's saying in light of because Paul wouldn't doubt this. Secondly, they think maybe it's being resurrected when Christ comes, and I would be there when Christ comes. That's, that's possible. The third possibility is he is speaking of, as we see in Romans chapter 6, the spiritual resurrection from the dead, the very idea that Paul conveyed in Romans chapter 6 about being united with Christ in his death and his resurrection life. Look at Romans chapter 6 as we finish up. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might increase? No way. May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? The principle that true believers, if we abide in Christ, we're actually dead to sin. And notice what he says here. He says here, Or do you not know that all who have been baptized or placed into Christ Jesus have been placed into or baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into in order that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. He says here, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And later on he'll say, Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. 
that I might be conformed to his death in relationship to sin and my will, and I'll be raised in resurrection power, in a sense, walking in the power of his resurrection. I think the third possibility is the most reasonable, and I think the next few verses actually affirm that. He says that he might, that he talks about here, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Look back in our passage, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it. He's not speaking about physical resurrection, right? Or that I have already become perfect. He's talking about a synonymous thought, that I've become complete or mature. He's talking about maturity in Christ. But I press forward towards that goal, not physical resurrection, but being like Christ, dead to sin and alive to Christ. Being like that. I press forward. I press forward. So the reference to his being conformed to his death, I believe, dying to sin as we experienced then his resurrected life out of the dead. And he's going to go on and say, that's what I press forward to, brothers and sisters, this upward call to become like Christ. And the only way to become like Christ is to die to sin and be alive to God in Christ. It's the only way. Is this not what he shares in Second Corinthians chapter 4? He says, always carrying out the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. One last portion here, Pastor writes, the thought here is the same as the preceding verse. The apostle is not thinking of a future yet time, the first resurrection when the dead shall rise and all believers shall receive their glorified bodies. He is thinking of the daily Christian walk in the flesh, actual righteousness of Christ produced in the life the character of Christ is his goal. He will never reach it while in the flesh, but he desires to go as far as he possibly can in that direction, to daily experience the power of Christ's resurrection in one's life. One last passage. Turn to Galatians 2.20. Here's the mindset of a true believer. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I've died. I've died with Christ. Okay? And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I live by faith in him. That's how I live. So what am I saying here? Paul desired to be conformed to the death of Christ so that he would live the resurrection life in Christ. So that Christ could live through him. And that's what being conformed to his image is like. So how about you? What are your desires? Do you want to be more like Christ? Is that your desire? Is that an overwhelming desire? When you fail, you don't want to be that way. You want to be like Christ. When you get irritated, upset, worried, don't trust the Lord, whatever it might be, you see that as wrong. You want to be like Christ. I want to die to sin and live to Christ. I want his power manifest in my life. I want to know him. I want to know him. This is the testimony of a true believer. So we've seen Paul counted all his loss in order to gain Christ, and he gained him in his righteousness. That's the beginning of salvation. And he had a deep desire to know him intimately. And lastly, he had a deep desire to be like him, knowing that being conformed to his death brings about the resurrection life. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and mercy towards me. Your kindness and mercy towards those of us here who have been saved. Thank you that your son died for our sins. Thank you that because of him we will be found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own, but that which is from from you through your son. Through faith in your son. Father, may we have our minds renewed that we would seek to become more and more like Christ. That we would press on towards this goal. To know him. To know and understand the fellowship of his sufferings, his resurrection power, to be conformed to his death, that we may walk in newness of life. I pray that we would think this way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, if you could...